0: The miracles of Jesus serve as signs of redemption, showing in symbolic form what Jesus is doing spiritually through his life, death, and resurrection. You're listening to Wondrous Deeds, a summer sermon series by the elders of Cornerstone Bible Church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Uh, it's good to be together and to uh, be worshiping together. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, uh, so I'll, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 14 this morning. We'll be in Matthew 14, 22 through 33. As you turn there, i just want just say a few things. Um, I totally forgot that I needed to wear a microphone, so Seth and Matt helped me out during the prayer uh, by making sure that you could actually hear me this morning. Uh, And Jordan prays long prayers, and we thank God for that for so many reasons. Um, A couple things here. The first thing, uh, good morning to those of you who are tuning in via live stream um, on our last Sunday that we'll be doing our final live stream Sunday morning worship. Uh, We've been offering the live stream now for quite a while. Uh, We've provided it in the midst of this emergency time and trying to provide something for this potential crisis But uh, we believe that's coming to an end in one sense. We don't have a crystal ball or know what that means exactly. But we do know that we are calling one another to gather. If you know anything about the internet and other churches, if you go on the internet, there's way better sermons. There's better gifted speakers um, for you to be encouraged by. So instead of just looking to Cornerstone's live stream, we'd encourage you to come and be part of what's going on here. We would love for that to be with Cornerstone, but if you're joining us from somewhere else uh, in a different area, join a gospel-preaching local church that loves Christ and that wants to walk in his rule. So I'd encourage you in those ways. I just want to remind you then, next week, Sunday, September 5th, we will not have Sunday morning worship services live streamed. Uh, Of course, if you have any questions about that, we still have the sermons that will go online uh, on our website and our podcast. If you have any questions about that, please come talk to me or one of the elders, Jordan, Nathan, or John. I'd be happy to talk. Second thing, thank you to the five different men who have preached the last five weeks. Do you realize what that means? You have five other guys at least, and there's more, I will tell you that. There's at least five other men who can ably handle the word of God and preach to us. This is a good gift. I don't know that we recognize the the, the wealth of Bible teaching and ability that God has given to our congregation. And I'm thankful for that, both for, for you and for sitting under the Word, but then also giving me a break to study some other things, work on a few other things. So this is good to sit like that together. So thank you men for preaching to us and feeding us that way. Third, Next week, we'll begin a new sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so that will start next week. I'm excited to kind of give us an introduction to Ecclesiastes and wisdom literature. Uh, you can be praying for that towards the end that God would graciously grow us and we'd learn from this series. And then lastly, next Thursday, not this Thursday, but next Thursday, which will be September 9th. We will start up our Thursday evening core seminars. Every Thursday here at the building, 7 p.m., we'll be studying together. This little section on this next month will be on exploring our great salvation. So we think about Romans 8, and we ask the question, what does it mean for God to foreknow? What does it mean that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son? What does it mean that he justified us? What does it mean that he glorified us? We'll be exploring how our salvation works, both from our perspective, but more importantly, from the scriptures and God's perspectiveness. So that's just kind of a little bit of an understanding and getting us going here, but let's get to the text together. I want you to look at Matthew 14. We're going to read verses 22 through 33 together. This is God's word. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way away way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word together, please show us Jesus. Not the Jesus of mythology who somehow is so good back then and we wish we were around to eat the bread and fishes and watch him walk on water. But we know the Jesus Christ who showed up in flesh and gave himself for our redemption. We know the one who has left his spirit here to work in us. We know the one who empowers us to proclaim Jesus Christ to the nations. We thank you for your great love as we sang it this morning. We ask that you impress us in our hearts by your grace and power for you to receive glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me tell you the story about Jesus and Peter walking on the water. Now, most likely, most likely all of you have heard this story or read this story at some point or another. We have it in Matthew 14. We also have it in Mark 6. And we also have it in John 6. All of them have the same sequence. We have the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water. Uh, so the truth is, you probably already know this story. You probably you know, see memes about Jesus walking on the water, the things that he can do. But you've probably at least been able to have some sort of conversation where people, if they know anything about Jesus, they can joke around that he can walk on water. So we, we know somewhat what's going on here. We kind of know. But let me encourage you as a Christian, even though you know what's going to happen, We don't want to come to the sermon hoping to be entertained or to get more knowledge about the Bible alone so that somehow we'll be built up as though this is some sort of continuing education instruction. We do that for our work all the time, and it's right for us to know more about the Bible, but that is not the goal. It's not so that we'll have our heads stuffed with facts about the Bible. Many of us truly do know the Bible, We read it. We've heard it many times in our lives. We we care about it. We want to grow in it. Uh, But I want to remind you that knowing the right things but never allowing those things to change our hearts will really only lead to pride and truly discontentment. Paul says, if you remember this, that knowledge puffs up, but that love builds up. In other words, what you learn about the Bible was never meant to make you more you know, impressive or somehow make you smarter alone. It was meant to bring you and me joy, to delight in our creator, our redeemer, the one who will reign and does reign. It's meant to stir our hearts to love him and to shape us and to humble us so that we will live rightly as kingdom citizens. It's no accident then that Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets, you know this, is to love, love God and to love others. So I encourage you, as we, before we start here, don't tune out because you already know this miracle. Again, I, I realize that's true, but I want you to prepare, in a sense, to be delighted by seeing Jesus and asking God that he would stir your own heart with love for him and your happiness and joy to obey him. In Matthew 14, we find Jesus and his disciples, seaside or lakeside. We find him and his disciples running baskets of food up and down the grassy slopes and the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We know this story already. The disciples are busy serving, helping distribute all the portions of the bread and fish that came out of this very small meal that Jesus miraculously multiplied. The crowd then had been gathered actually to hear this preacher and to see his healing and perhaps even to be healed. They had heard of him. He had preached far and wide. His authority was different from the scribes. He was able to do things that no one else would do. So far in the brief ministry here in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, he's preached the famous Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he's cleansed a leper. He's healed many who are sick, many who are sick. He's calmed a raging storm. He's cast out several demons. He's raised people from the dead. He's made blind people see. He's made mute people talk. I mean, the word is out. This guy is incredible, and people want to come see him. So a big crowd gathers, about 5,000 strong. That's men only, not talking about the men and uh, women and children. And supper's just about over. Everyone's received more than they can eat. They're very satisfied, the text says. And it's at this point that we start our story. Jesus brings his close followers together, his disciples, and he makes them get in the boat and go out onto the ocean or the sea to the other side, it says. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, we don't exactly know why he did it exactly like this. We we would probably think that he would get in the boat with them. That would make sense, um, but he doesn't do that. And the disciples, you would think maybe, if we were thinking in that vein, would react, like make a big fuss about this, but they don't. This is somewhat normal, and they understand what he's doing. I think Jesus does this because he's trying to break up this gathering in a peaceful and appropriate way. In uh, in John 6, which is kind of a sister passage here, it tells us that the crowd was ready to take Jesus and force him to be king because he was doing so many things that this military messiah that they were looking for was able to do, hoping that he'd pan out to be the one that they'd all hoped for to overcome the Romans. That's not quite right, though. It wasn't Jesus' agenda to do what they thought he should do. He had something more important more eternal to do than overcome the Romans at this present point. So instead, he gets the ball rolling by sending his disciples out peacefully and almost as an example for the rest of the crowd to follow. And as they go out, he dismisses the crowd and sends them to their homes and towns and back to where they belong. Now, I realize that this is a small point, but I want us to notice what Jesus is doing, the type of leadership he has. He's a servant. He doesn't look for glory for himself but is ready to say, you guys, go ahead. I'm going to dismiss this crowd peacefully. I'm not going to do all that they want me to do. Let's just think about it. They could, he could get all the glory he wants to at this moment, but instead sends them off, serves well, and makes sure that his disciples take this way that he had planned. I just ask us, do we serve in that way? In Humility? When opportunities arise where people would look to us and we would get the praise and the glory, is it... Is it our regular responses say, I want to act in humility and serve, not get all the glory for me, me, me. Even for the beginning parts of this story, we're watching Jesus, who's a humble servant and master. So Jesus, having finally dismissed everyone and not seeing the, flo- you know, the, the disciples floating offshore closely or anything like that, he turns up the hill and he walks into the mountains to Pray. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. If you look back at Matthew 14:13, kind of the beginning of this chapter here, you'll see that Jesus actually came out here for this reason. Originally, he was here for solitude, to be by himself, to be with God. But the crowds followed him, and because He was compassionate and loving and a a servant. He healed their sick and loved them. And then to top it all off, he goes and gets them dinner and miraculously provides for all these people. By this point, I mean, just really think about Jesus' day. Can you imagine breaking bread for 15,000 people? I mean, that's roughly probably about what we're talking about here. If there was one woman and one child, roughly per man, that's there. Can you imagine breaking that amount of bread? He's probably physically exhausted by this time. And we see him here go off into solitude. He's had a really long day. After dinner time now, the crowds get sent home, and he finds finally the opportunity that he has been looking for, time for him to get alone with his father. Notice what's happening here. Jesus, our perfect example, doesn't plop on the couch and relax after a long day. Instead, we watch him get along with God and pray. So in the serfs had asked, how do you get refreshed? What do you feel like at the end of a long day? What does it look like for you when you, we when you, when you need rest? And we know that God commands rest, by the way. He shows us that this is right. But Jesus prioritizes rest proper rest, that which will refuel him and give him the ability to walk according to God's word. He prioritizes time with God. I don't care how busy and how uh, tired you are, you should rest, but you are not too tired to pray and know God. Jesus, our most perfect and beautiful example, who is differently with God now, as he has now come to earth. He's not in the same presence as he was, once was with the Father. He shows us the way to know and love and fellowship with God. Guys, it's through prayer. It's through getting alone from the way from the distractions and, and others, all non- constant, nonstop stuff going on. And he fellowships, fellowships with his God, with his Father, in prayer. So let me ask you. How do you get refreshed? How do you deal with the thousands of big and small decisions that you have to make daily? How do you handle the stress and anxiety? Maybe it's alone time with a book or with social media or news scrolling through and finding out what's going on. Maybe you turn to food. Maybe you turn to relaxing or or drink or pleasure to help you cope with a difficult, long day. Guys, remember, I'm not saying that these things are wrong. We are actually to receive them with thanksgiving but they are a terrible excuse for the Father, the one who actually can give us refreshment and blessing and grace. Food cannot do that in that same way, or watching TV or scrolling or whatever it is that we fill in the blank with. Jesus shows us so, so, so clearly that we are, yes, to be thankful for these things, but to be spending time with God. You and I need to get alone with God. We can't think that, a few 20-second prayers throughout the day here and there is true fellowship with God. It's right for us to get alone, to call on him, to pray. So I'd call us as a body, guys, make time to pray. Set aside time to get alone with God. At this point then in our story, Matthew is making a contrast. He makes it clear that Jesus is here, alone, on the mountain, praying, talking with God. As you keep reading, you see that the disciples are far from him. They're not with him at all. They're out in the waves and in the, the winds. Let me pick up in verse 23 and into 24. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the wave, winds, sorry, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In our story, remember there's a story here, the first real tension arises. What's happening here is that The disciples are away from their teacher, their rabbi. They're not in the same place. Disciples seem to be all together in this boat, but they are far from shore. Now, in the Bible that you're reading in front of you, the ESV text says that the boat was a long way from land. And that's a fine way to say it. But the actual wording in Greek says that they were many stadia out to sea. Now, we don't use the word stadia very often. It's a unit of measurement. It's roughly 607 feet long so you understand that we're talking roughly about two football fields long and he says that there are several stadia out to sea. So we're thinking probably like at least at least three stadia. We're talking about maybe 600 yards. It's pretty far out there. The winds are against them and they're struggling here. They're making no headway against these strong winds. The disciples are distressed and struggling by themselves in the midst of this storm again. If you hear a few weeks ago, Jordan Started out in Matthew 8, where they are with Jesus in the boat in the midst of a storm. But this time, Jesus isn't in the boat with them. They're alone. At this point, Matthew tells us that between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that's the fourth watch of the night, that Jesus came to the aid of his disciples. But he didn't throw them a long rope. He didn't do something from shore. He he didn't swim out to them. He didn't get another boat to get out there. Verse twenty-five says, "And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea." And how did the disciples react to this? Oh, this is my favorite Bible story. Jesus coming to us. We're supposed to respond in faith. This is no, no, no. Verse twenty-six. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, "It is a ghost." and they cried out in fear. Now remember, these disciples have seen miracles, incredible miracles, but nothing could have prepared them for this miracle. They're away from the crowds, they're away from anything else, and they're watching what's going on. These guys are tired, bedraggled. They're probably rowing in the boat or probably bailing water out or at least holding on for their dear lives. And in the midst of this, They look across the storm-tossed waters where it's dark, still the early hours of the morning or late into the night, whatever you want to call it, and they see a figure walking on top of the water. In case you didn't know, that doesn't happen. They see this in the midst of their stress. Can you imagine what it would be like in the dark of the night and the winds and waves howling, bearing down, and you look out, and you see something walking across Rudy Inlet? Or you see something walk across the bay in front of us? I mean, we probably won't be saying, oh, maybe it's someone I know. No, I'm sure everything is not fine. This is strange. Something has gone wrong here. Let's say it's 4.30 in the morning. No crowds are around to see what Jesus is going to do. Not to do another miracle. The situation is dire for them. And they see a figure walking across the top of the water. I mean, this freaks them out. They don't know what to do with this. Remember where they are. This is really important. If you remember back to Jordan's sermon. They are on the sea. The sea, in Jewish understanding, is a place of uncertainty, chaos, chaos and even evil and death. Consider not only that the sea itself was personified like this throughout the scriptures, but that it was also a place that contained many lost souls. People. Think about all the different people who had died, the bodies that had drowned there. Think of the shipwrecks. Think of the fishing accidents. Think of the lost boats. Many people had died here in the Sea of Galilee. Now consider seeing someone walking Toward you on top of that body of water. You may not think it's so strange anymore that the disciples thought it was a ghost. I mean, they're really seeing it. It's really happening in front of them. They're looking at each other like, Are you seeing this? Yes, I'm seeing this. Are Are we all seeing this? It's really happening here. Verse 26 and 27. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus quickly dispels their fears. Don't worry guys, it's, it's me. He commands them not to fear, encourages them that it's not a ghost, but that it's Jesus, their teacher, the one who they know and are following. Don't we all need this reminder sometimes? Uh, don't we need to be reminded the presence of God is constantly near in the midst of our fears and doubts uncertainties and chaos do we tend to worry what will happen to us whether near term or long term or to our children or what's gonna happen tomorrow at work we're concerned with all these different things do we take seriously then the fact that God is here and involved in each part of our lives we don't need to be afraid God is near I mean, think about this. For, for those of us who are parents, or at least at, all, at one point you were all children, perhaps if you grew up in a Christian home, you might have some sort of understanding of this. But for those of us who are Christian parents, we've probably used this very line of divine logic with our children when they fear the dark or uncertainty or scary things that they can't control. Don't worry, child. God is near. He has made you. He is sovereign over all things. He even holds all things together. You can trust him in the midst of your fears. Now, at this point, we're expecting Matthew to really kind of draw the story to a close. He's done the thing. Jesus has shown them who he is. And that's what we'd expect, and that's what happens in Mark 6 and in John 6. But Matthew doesn't do that. He isn't done yet. It's only in Matthew that we get this deeper look into the next logical question from this situation. The question is, so, disciples, will you believe? Will you trust Jesus, the Son of God? Let's pick up in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is incredible. I mean, Peter sees and believes and asks Jesus to welcome him out to walk on the water to him. Jesus, now ready to show his disciples who he really is and what he can really do for them, looks back at Peter and says, come. So in faith, Peter swings his feet over the edge of the boat. And I'm sure with much drama, I mean, can you imagine? Peter's going to walk on the water. and It's not below 32 degrees. He's going to do this. He puts his first foot out in the steps. And his second, and his third, Peter The regular old fisherman is walking on the water. I mean, it's one thing to see Jesus, the guy who's done all these miracles, walk on water. But now, to see Peter, also this regular, normal guy, say, welcome me out. And Jesus says, come. And he walks on the water toward Jesus. The text says, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Let me stop for a moment. Is this your God? Is this your God? I just want you to think about this. Is this the God that you trust in? The one who enters into real time, real space, to work on our behalf, behalf of these people, to show them his might and his sovereign control over creation? Jordan, a few weeks ago, reminded us, (laughs) you can't in one thing say, miracles are true. We hold to all the miracles of Jesus. We hold to all the miracles of Jesus. And then in our normal, regular, everyday lives, we trust medicine and money, and humans, and resources before we ever go to God and ask of him. Where is your real trust? Do you trust in this one, one who truly has all power over everything? And of course, I'm not talking about some sort of ungodly faith healing where we tell God what he is supposed to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that warped way of thinking where somehow we become the God and we tell God what to do. I'm talking about faith that first turns to God every time and asks of him. Money and medicine and people are wonderful resources that God has given us to use, but not to trust. Uh, He's given us wonderful things to use, but not to worship. To use, but not to depend on to get the results that we want. So are we anxious or distraught? Do we worry? Are we consumed by fears of this or that thing that might happen? It's possible that you and I may be more concerned and afraid of the things around us than we are of God. Is it possible that we do not fear God for who he is? Friends, let me remind you that there's only one who you should fear, and he is the one who we worship this morning. Listen to Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Peter calls out to God in faith. Jesus commands him to come, and Peter, in obedience, walks on the water. He is trusting God, fearing him above the power of the sea until verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In faith, Peter had asked Jesus if he would perform another miracle. Think about this, that Jesus would uphold Peter on top of the water as he walked there to him. And Jesus does it. He responds by doing another miracle. Peter's walking on the water, upheld by the power of God, who is over the winds and the seas. But then Peter looks around. He saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. Peter sees this treacherous environment around him. He stops fearing God and instead fears the elements, and he begins to sink. At this point, we're really back in Matthew 8, where we were before, right? Remember Matthew 8, 25? The disciples are struggling against the storm. They're afraid and need help from everybody that's on board, and so they tell Jesus, hey, don't you care? Save us, Lord. We're perishing over here. And Jordan made it clear they're not asking in salvation terms, They're asking like, hey, help us out. We're dying here. We actually need everyone's help. Please help us out, Rabbi. Peter's doing the same thing here. He is sinking to his death in this raging sea. And he says and cries out for help, Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, if you're keeping track This is the third miracle that Jesus has done so far in the story. He walked on water. Peter walked on water. And now he saves Peter from drowning in this water. Jesus saves Peter really from death is what we're seeing happen here. He grabs hold of him and saves him from drowning in the sea. In compassion and love, he responds to the call for help and salvation. In compassion, he reaches out and does for Peter what Peter cannot do for himself. Do you know that this is the heart of our God? Do you know Exodus 34, 6? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, a oh Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A heart of love, compassion, and mercy. We rightly see God in all his terror and sovereign control, but look at this God. Psalm 116.5, Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. This is our God. This is the one who cares. Christian, do not forget that your God is merciful, that he is compassionate, that he lifts us up in our weaknesses. But Jesus doesn't only save, he also speaks to him. Very important here. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The, the third miracle is done. Peter is saved by Jesus, but he turns attention to the real problem, not the wind and the waves. The real problem is Peter's faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you fear these things around you instead of me? Why didn't you trust me fully? is what he's asking him here. Oh, you of little faith. A few weeks ago we mentioned this, but we need to think about this again. I don't think Jesus' statement is talking about the amount of faith, as though we have a bucket and we have to have at least 60% for it to be called enough faith. No, 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 no. He's not talking about an amount of faith, but the quality and the object of that faith. Almost like what, what happening is to Peter here is shifting an impoverished faith. Uh, It didn't have to be a giant amount of faith, but rather it had to be true faith. I mean, Jesus talks about the faith that's the size of a mustard seed. A faith that was rested completely on the character and the ability of God. As one scholar says, faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. It's a true faith that rightly understands the object of what they're believing in. That, what, I, what I mean by that is that Jesus is calling Peter to understand the person who he is trusting, himself, Jesus. Sometimes I think we, uh, we have a problem. We think that we must not be believing enough, and if that we can just kind of flex a little bit more and get a little more belief out, we're just going to faith a little bit harder. That's what I need to do. I need to believe a little bit more in Santa Claus. I just need to get this thing done. and I, I have the strength, I have the faith that if you just believe, what a, what, a, what a cruddy way to think about faith. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about faith, true faith in the right one. It misses the point if we're just thinking about amounts of faith in this way. He's saying that you must not know God very well if you started sinking in these waters when I've commanded you to come to me. Think about that. I commanded you. You must not think me a very good God if you decided instead to look about all the other things. What about you? What's your faith like? Do you love, that's an important word, do you love and trust this God for things? I'm not talking about do you believe about a God somewhere. Man, I can't tell you how much I hear that. I believe in God. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, love me, trust me. He talks about real faith here. Or do you and I maybe trust him just for the eternal things? What a silly observation. The eternal things like salvation, but like the everyday stuff, I don't know if I can really trust him to do all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm good with you getting my salvation straight, but like all this other stuff and financial struggles and anxiety and struggles within my children growing and failing and all this and my failures, ah, I got to kind of hold on to all of that. What do you trust in? What is your faith? Is it an impoverished faith? Or is it one that sees God over all things and trusts him throughout all of it? And I'll just remind you, there's only one way to grow in faith. You and I must get more of God. It's a problem of sight. We're looking at the wrong things. We must know him. We must see him for all that he truly is. We need to hear this passage this morning and a thousand other passages that proclaim the bigness and kindness of our God. So, what do you do? I mean, it's, it's very simple, guys. Get God's ear prayer. Get God's word the Bible, and get with God's people. And you experience what he's called us to do and to be. The normal means of grace that he's called us to, opening his word and listening to him so that we would know him. Worshiping together, calling one another to those things, calling on God in prayer, and asking him to change and actually to increase our faith. In other words, pursue God using the means of grace that he's already given us. Jesus has saved Peter and has used the situation to teach the disciples what it looks like for a Christian to obey God. Now, the last two verses of the story help us see that the disciples are starting to get it. We're in Matthew 14 by now, right? They've been going along for a while now with Jesus, but we're seeing that they're starting to get it. They're listening. They've changed since what happened in Matthew 8 in the boat. Listen to verse 32 and 33. When they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The disciples had just watched Jesus walk on water, watched Peter walk on water, watched Jesus save Peter from drowning out of there. And then as they climb into the boat, the wind ceases. And they respond the right way. Not like they did back in Matthew 8 when they said, what sort of man is this? No, this time they get it right And Matthew says that they worshiped and said, truly you are the Son of God. Now to us reading this today, we don't think twice about this little statement, but you guys have to remember, we have to remember, they don't have a section in their systematic theology called Christology. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth and talking about him and how his divinity and his, his humanity work together. They don't have that. All they know is that the Messiah is coming one day. And now they're seeing this man and they don't know what it's even going to be like. And so they're willing, though, to say, we don't have words or definitions or categories for this guy. He must be the son of God. This is an enormous statement by them. And it shows us, and as Matthew says, that they were worshiping him for who he was. These men confess that Jesus is the son of God. I'll ask you this then. How do you respond when you see Jesus for who he truly is? How have you responded these past three weeks when the elders have been preaching about the miracles of Jesus, when we see him for who he truly is? What does it do to your faith when you come to understand that the mighty Jesus of Nazareth is your king if you trust him? Is this, in this circumstance, the disciples got it right. They worshiped. They proclaimed that Jesus was the son of God. And I just want to take a look a little bit aside here. Isn't it amazing that worship isn't something that comes from getting hyped up and getting all the right surrounding context so that we feel worship? Instead, true worship comes from seeing God for who He is and responding in faith. That's the interesting irony, I think, here. Peter and the rest of the disciples get admonished for their little faith over and over again in the book of Matthew, in 6.30 and 8.26, here in chapter 14, again in 17.20, and yet their response here, along with everybody else in the boat, is to believe and worship. The disciples aren't fully there yet, but they are growing. They are learning. They are believing. And it certainly seems as though they're on this journey that God is growing them in faith. And here, Matthew, again, explains this proclamation as worship. We're on the same journey. I recognize that perhaps we say, I'm saved, and as though we're done, we've got our card to get into heaven, we're good to go. But recognize that we also daily grow, week after week, we learn who our Savior is and grow to trust him and grow to live by faith on this journey as we know and trust him. Uh Let our response then be the same one as the disciples, right? Worship, proclaiming and saying, you are the son of God. So after working through this whole story now, what are we supposed to learn? There's been a lot of different little lessons along the way, things that we picked up. But let me give you a few things to think about when considering this miracle. I think that we need to see this through what Jesus, I'm sorry, I think we need to see that through this miracle, Jesus is proving that he is the Lord, that he is God. He's proving his divinity for them. He's showing disciples that he's not just a rabbi, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a healer, he is the answer to the, all of their problems, that he is God. He's the faithful one that God said, your reward is me. First, Jesus walks in the water. Remember this? <laughs> this is full of symbolism. Think about God over creation, but more importantly, about God over the instrument and uncertainty of uncertainty, chaos, and destruction, this sea. I mean, this passage says lots of stuff. Let me just give you a couple things. I'm gonna give you three passages. Jordan read one of them this morning, Job 9.8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Who does that? Oh, God does. That's what Job tells us. Psalm 77:19. 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Who does that? Oh, he's talking about God again. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Do you see what Jesus is doing as he makes a path in the waters and walks across the top of the sea? He is showing by his very action that he is God. There's no mistake here. Jesus is showing the disciples that he is their God. But there's more. I love this. Notice how Jesus responds to the disciples' fear. Listen to his words. All the gospel writers actually say this. They report Jesus' response in the same way, but Matthew makes it so clear that what he's doing, by a rhythm and balance, this is exactly the answer that they need. Let me explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 26 together. I want you to notice a formula here. This gets a little geeky here for a minute, but just stick with me. You're going to see this. It's pretty simple. It's kind of like we have like a fear sandwich. Walk with me. First, they're terrified. Look at this. You see it in verse 26. They're terrified. Second, they said, it is a ghost. Third, they cried out in fear. Terrified, it's a ghost, fear. Got it? Now go on. Look at uh, what Jesus responds in verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What's the heart of their fear in this short paragraph? Well, it's, it's this ghost figure that they're seeing. They don't know what it is. They're concerned about the identity of whatever it is walking across this water. It may bring them harm, or maybe it would bring them down into the depths of the sea and kill them. They don't know. The disciples respond in fear. But they respond with a formula to which Jesus responds with his own formula, matching them perfectly and making sure that they get it. Jesus says first, take heart. Take heart. It is I. And third, do not be afraid. I don't think this formula is an accident. The disciples believe that this is a ghost, so they're afraid. Jesus says, it is I, so don't be afraid. The identity of the ghost scares the disciples, the identity of Jesus dispels their fears. But that's not all. There's even more here. What is so cool about this section is that you and I have read the rest of the Bible. And we know what's going on in the past as well. We know that Jesus is not just another rabbi or prophet. And therefore, when Jesus says, it is I, he isn't simply saying, don't worry, guys, it's just me. Uh, He is saying that, but you may not know or pick up the nuance until you hear the phrase in Greek. Now, I know you don't know Greek. It's ego, a me, I, and then the word to be, I am. Now, does does that make you think of anything? I am is how he responds in this situation. Do not fear. I am. Don't be afraid. Think back with me, if you will, in Exodus 3.14. Moses, God meets him at the burning bush and calls him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses asks, but if people ask me, what is his name? What should I say? God responds in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. The same thing is used in Isaiah 43, 11 and 51, 12, this divine name, I am. Disciples may not have picked up on it. They just thought, oh, it's, it's Jesus. Because, again, it's right to say it is I. That's fine. They understand that. But Matthew is making sure that we don't miss this, that Jesus is declaring who he is. The one that went through the sea, that made a path over top the waves, is in fact calling himself I am. So with these two important details, we realize that Matthew is using this miracle to show us that Jesus isn't just some gifted human prophet, but that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Now, I'm thinking that you're like me and you take this truth for granted. I lived on earth for 37 years. I grew up in a Christian home in in, in the church, and all the teaching I've ever heard is that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God that he is 100% man and 100% God. Uh, And I've, I've kind of thought, maybe immaturely, that Jesus is some kind of superhuman, you know, that was not quite like me. But Jesus, if you remember from Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, was made in every respect like us and was tempted in every respect like us. But, you know the rest, without sin. Born sinless, he was born of Mary, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the perfect second Adam capable of doing that, which Adam and even later on Israel could not do. Instead of succumbing to the temptation of the devil, instead of complaining and grumbling about the wilderness wandering, Jesus faithfully trusted his Father and obeyed completely. And so, you're going to hear this in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you may be asking, Chris, are you getting a little ahead of yourself here? Like, that's Philippians 2. Aren't we still back in the Gospels? Aren't we still back, like, before Jesus has resurrected, he hasn't ascended, he hasn't even died yet. Aren't you getting a little ahead of yourself here? Well, and yes, in some way, he hasn't done that yet. But this is where I want us to listen. This is an important piece here for us to do when we're reading the miracles and understanding these gospel writers. This is an important thing for us to consider here. There are important symbols and lessons in the miracles of Jesus that are given for us at hints of what is to come. Jesus is showing us who he really is and what he has come to do. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but that's what Jordan and John and Nathan have been doing the last three weeks. They've been showing you that these aren't just clever tricks and miracles but rather they're tying them rightly to the salvation work that Jesus will do on his people's behalf at the cross. They're showing us that Jesus is using these miracles not to be nice, but to teach us about the world's ultimate need and what he is going to do about that need. Think about what Jesus did while he was on earth. I just want you to think about this. What kind of reach he had. How many people did he heal from being sick? Maybe, maybe, maybe hundreds, maybe, maybe, maybe thousands. How many blind people did he make to see? A handful? We don't don't really know. How many people did he make alive that were dead in the ground and they came to physical life eventually to die again? I'm not belittling the miracles of Jesus. I just want you to see the scope here. How many years was he in ministry? Roughly three. Then he dies in his mid-30s. So in all of human history, he comes to do a few miracles and special physical things for a tiny amount of people for a very short time for the sake of making sure that they might somehow think that he was the real deal? Is that the purpose of the miracles here of Jesus? Or is it possible that he is showing us something through real things that he was able to do about what he would do ultimately and eternally in his death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification at the right hand of the Father? I want us to see It's not allegory to somehow figure out, let's push it over here and that's what's going on. No, no, Jesus is using these things to show us what he will do for us. Again, we recognize that he's using these acts or signs or miracles to show the world a picture of what is coming in his work of redemption. We know this now after reading the story, right? We've read the rest of the story. We know what happens. We know he was crucified, resurrected, ascended to the Father's right hand. We know that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We know the Father has put all things under Jesus' feet and given him as head over all things to the church. Therefore, since we know what happens, and think about this, since Matthew knows what happens in the story, he's writing this after all this has happened, he knows that Jesus comes, We should see the miracles of Jesus as an important way for Jesus to communicate what he is coming to do. And not just for those few years. Think about this He is coming to make spiritually blind people see. This is the way we talk about our salvation. He's coming to make spiritually sick and lame people whole, He's making spiritually dead people alive, He's abolishing spiritual death. He's coming to bring ultimate cleanness, righteousness for his people. And in our story, we've got multiple things happening. He comes as one who's victorious over chaos, uncertainty, evil, and death. He walks on the sea. He comes as one who requires his people to look to him alone, to come and for him to to calm their spiritual fears. He says, do not fear, I am. And then lastly, he comes as one who lifts up or saves those who call on him in faith for help. Remember, Peter says, Lord, save me. Even Peter's faith alone can't do it. Peter trusts God to do what only God can do, save sinners. By the way, that last piece is not a new theme. Psalm 18, 16 says, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Psalm 144.7, stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. We know that this is true of God throughout history. He saves his people. But in this miracle, Jesus shows us that it will be his miraculous work that will ultimately save sinners through faith in him and his atoning work on the cross. And so, we end this sermon having seen Jesus in the viewpoint of this miracle, having been delighted then to know and to trust and to love him for who he says he is, knowing that we have been encouraged by what we see in these regular miracles, but knowing there's something far more miraculous that he does at the cross, atoning for our sin and rescuing us. May we then trust the one who has power over chaos, uncertainty, and evil. May we trust the one who calms our fears, and may we trust the one who saves us from eternal death. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, oh, you are our God. You are the Son of God. I pray, God, that you would make my heart not have those be empty words. Lord, please increase our faith together. Would we see you for who you are? Would we trust then in, in, the, in all that comes to us our fears, our struggles. Are in a sense, storms, we'd remember those storms cannot ultimately crush us, even if they do in our physical lives. May we trust the one who has redeemed us, who has saved us by his great love, who has power over uncertainty and evil, who calms our fears and ultimately saves us from eternal damnation. We thank you, Lord. May we live in thanksgiving these lives that you've given to us and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.